Good evening and welcome to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. This is your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health related news, including everything about the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, how to rid yourself of bad habits, how to improve your relationships and how to make sense of media reports about the latest research into the causes and potential new treatments for mental illness. Along the way, better informing the general public about mental health issues and trying to reduce the stigma associated with having a psychiatric diagnosis and needing treatment for it. All of that brought to you without the hype and distortion of other media sources but with the benefit of more than 20 years in the practice of psychiatry. Thank you once again for tuning into this podcast, which was pre-recorded for airing on Wednesday, June 15, 2016. And unfortunately, the leading mental health story since we last to get, got together is the worst mass shooting of all time in the United States, even though at the time I'm recording this, we don't know for a fact that there was a diagnosable mental illness for the shooter. Of course, I'm talking about the massacre in the Orlando gay nightclub called Pulse that took place over <clears throat> this past weekend. And... At the time I'm recording this, the issue that was being presented in the mainstream media is that there is possible hints at mental illness, uh, nothing definite known as yet. Uh, we're going to talk later about how the media portrays mental illness and violence and the issue of jumping to conclusions in a case like this and indeed, simply the idea of concluding that someone who committed such a callous, heinous act of violence, unprovoked, un, uh, but premeditated violence against innocent people, by definition, must be mentally ill. Um, and we're going to talk about why it's strange, but that's not the case. Um, and... It, it turns out, quite ironically, there were some articles I was going to present to you anyway, regardless of there being this incident on this week's podcast, having to do with gun violence and the mentally ill, and also a study on uh, suicide related to that, where the data was taken from Florida, quite ironically. Well, let's start out with talking about how news stories often wrongly link violence with mental illness because that's a lot of what's going on in the wake of the horrible shooting in Orlando. Nearly 4 in 10 news stories about mental illness analyzed by Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health researchers connect mental illness with violent behavior toward others, 
even though less than 5% of violence in the United States is directly related to mental illness. The findings are published in the June issue of the journal Health Affairs, and they suggest that this routine linkage of mental illness with violence toward others paints an unfair portrait of those with mental illness, suggesting that most are prone to violence when numerous studies have concluded that only a small percentage actually commit violence. The researchers who examined a sample of stories published in top-tier media outlets over a 20-year period say they were surprised that there was little change in how the media portrayed people with mental illness. If anything, they say, the portrayals may have increased the stigma toward people with mental illness. Just 1% of newspaper stories linking violence with mental illness appearing on the front page in the first decade of the study period, 1994 to 2005, compared with 18% in the second decade, 2005 to 2014. Most people with mental illness are not violent toward others, and most violence is not caused by mental illness. But you would never know that by looking at media coverage of incidents. Despite all of the work that has been done to reduce stigma associated with mental health issues, this portrayal of mental illness as closely linked with violence worsens a false perception about people with these illnesses, many of whom live healthy, productive lives. In an ideal world, reporting would make clear the low percentage of people with mental illness who commit violence. In any given year, 20% of the United States population suffers from mental illness, and over a lifetime, roughly 50% receive a diagnosis. For their study, researchers analyzed a random sample of 400 news stories about mental illness over a 20-year period that appeared in 11 high-circulation, high-viewership media outlets in the United States. The most frequently mentioned topic across the study period was violence, 55%, with 38% mentioning violence against others and 29% linking mental illness with suicide. Treatment is mentioned in 47% of stories, but just 14% described successful treatment for or recovery from mental illness. Speaking of that, I hope later on tonight's podcast I have time for a positive story relating to just that, recovery from mental illness. Now, stories about successful treatment have the potential to decrease stigma and provide a counter-image to depictions of violence, but there are not that many of these types of narratives depicted in the news media. A deeper dive into the media coverage found that depictions of mass, mass shootings by individuals with mental illness increased over the course of the study period from 9% of all news stories in the first decade, 
to 22% in the second decade. The number of mass shootings, according to FBI statistics, has remained steady over the time period. Among the stories that mentioned violence toward others, 38% mentioned that mental illness can increase the risk of such violence, while 8% mentioned that most people with mental illness are never or rarely violent toward others. Now, <clears throat> this study finished in 2014, uh, so there's a lot of uh, shootings, unfortunately, that have taken place since then that would have fit in with these statistics, including what just happened over this past weekend. Schizophrenia was the specific diagnosis most frequently mentioned as related to violence, 17%, and the two most frequently mentioned risk factors for violence other than mental illness were drug use, 5%, and stressful life events, 5%. One limitation of this study is that it did not include stories from local television news, <clears throat> where large segments of Americans get their news. The negative stories add to the perception that people with mental illness are dangerous, a stigmatizing portrayal that prior studies have shown leads to a desire for social distance from people with mental illness. People who say they wouldn't want to work with someone with mental illness or wouldn't want someone with mental illness to marry into their families. Such stigma can lead to a reluctance among people with symptoms to seek treatment, problems staying in treatment, and discrimination regarding housing and employment. It may be difficult for members of the news media not to assume mental illness is in play because of the idea among many that anyone who would commit violence, especially mass shootings, must have mental illness. Well, again, I want to mention here, especially of what happened, especially in light of what happened in Orlando, of course, you know, it is not difficult to understand when someone commits such a heinous act of unprovoked premeditated violence, you have to assume there's something wrong. But unfortunately, anyone who kills people is... Uh, not mentally healthy, but not it isn't necessarily true that they can have a diagnosable illness. They may have anger or emotional issues, which can be clinically separate from a diagnosis of mental illness. And like we talked about before, violence may stem from alcohol or drug use, or issues related to poverty or child abuse, but these elements are rarely discussed. And as a result, coverage is skewed toward assuming mental illness first. But let's even put aside the mitigating factors that, of course, uh, people are not in such a charitable mood to consider when trying to wrap their brains around such horrific violence. It's enough to say that being capable of committing unspeakable acts of hatred and evil in such a violent manner is in and of itself, believe it or not, not enough to make a diagnosis 
of a mental illness. Uh, someone can be sane from the clinical point of view and certainly from a legal point of view, uh, but yet still harbor such evil and hatred in their mind and in their heart that they would commit such violence. Uh, again, more may be coming to light uh, between the time I record this podcast and the next week's podcast. But um, as of now, from what I know, uh, the, the shooter in the Orlando case uh, committed this act of violence out of hatred and prejudice toward gays um, and uh, p- perhaps out of an over, uh, over, over, uh, over uh, sense of religious um, zealotry. Uh, we'll know more hopefully soon. All right, time for our first commercial break. We'll be right back with more after that. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on americaswebradio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on americaswebradio.com anytime you like. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news Now, in the earlier segment, we talked about a study of how the media portrays mental illness when it comes to reporting violent acts, and we examined that in the context of the horrible shooting that took place in Orlando this past weekend. But, of course, that wasn't the only random senseless act of violence that took place in Florida recently, 
There was also a young man who drove from uh, St. Petersburg, uh, ironically, to Orlando and shot and killed a young woman who achieved some uh, fame and acclaim from being a singer on the program The Voice. Well, here is a study that I'm about to present to you of mental illness, gun violence, and suicide. It was done at Duke University, and uh, it looked at data accumulated in Florida. So again, this is timely in a very uh, sadly ironic way. Uh, People with serious mental illnesses who use guns to commit suicide, uh, as the young man who shot the singer did, are often legally eligible to purchase guns despite having a past record of an involuntary mental health examination and brief hospitalization, uh, which if you didn't know, that's supposed to exclude you from passing a background check to be able to purchase a firearm. Uh, Now, this study from the Duke University Medical Center was in the June issue of the journal Health Affairs. And uh, if you don't recall, that's also the exact journal that the uh, Johns Hopkins study that we talked in the first segment about. So it seems like that issue is devoted to um, violence and and mental illness. Uh, But regardless, the Duke study looked at gun use, violent crime, and suicide among 81,704 people diagnosed with schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, or major depression in Florida's Miami-Dade and Pinellas counties over 10 years starting in 2002. Over that time, 254 study subjects committed suicide, nearly four times the average suicide rate of the general adult population in Florida during the same period. Of the 50 people who used a gun to kill themselves, 72% were legally eligible to buy guns at the time of their deaths, The other 28% were not supposed to have or buy a gun, but used one to take their own lives. Although this study is limited to a specific population, adults involved in the public behavioral health system, the findings can guide federal and state efforts to more precisely tailor mental health-related legal restrictions to reduce gun violence. The study relied on a large volume of court and health records to examine the gun rights of people with serious mental health conditions and whether limits on their gun access could reduce violent crime and suicide involving guns. This is obviously very controversial. Uh, The whole notion that because you have a mental illness, but not just that, that you've had to have involuntary treatment for it, which uh, implies uh, a certain level of severity and uh, a lack of ability to care for oneself in the context of having that illness. Um, 
Should that and how should that compromise one's Second Amendment rights? There is a lot of focus on people with mental illness in the discussion of gun violence prevention, uh, as we saw in the earlier Hopkins study that we talked about in the first segment, and that's both wrong and right. Our federal gun regulations pertaining to mental illness prohibit lots of people from accessing firearms who are not violent and never will be. At the same time, they fail to identify some people who will be violent or suicidal. With these data, the hope is that there can be improved criteria for restrictions that might actually reduce gun violence, but also carefully balance risk and rights. The data showed slightly higher than average violent crime arrest rates among adults in the study, but found their use of guns in those crimes, 13%, was lower than in a comparable population from the same community, 24%. Of the arrests for violent gun-related crimes observed in the study, two-thirds involved adults who were already prohibited from accessing a gun, pointing to problems with background checks and enforcement. The study's findings suggest some suicides and violent crimes with guns could be prevented by a law many states have already enacted, blocking the sale of new guns by federally licensed dealers to people who have been involuntarily held during a mental health crisis, but were not committed against their will. About 26% of people in the study had previously been through an involuntary mental health evaluation during a crisis or similar incident, but still could own or buy guns under Florida laws at the time. These individuals have already been identified during a previous mental health crisis. They haven't been committed, but they're at increased risk of harming themselves or others. This is considered a lost public health opportunity in many states. States could say, let's use these mental health records that already exist to separate that individual from guns, at least temporarily. Now you can hear The voices on both sides of these issues, on the one side saying, this is just too slippery a slope, okay? We're going from federal guidelines that say if you've been involuntarily committed to mental health treatment by a judge, then you should, then you fail a background check for purchasing a weapon. Now you're going to say, you're going to extend that to people who have been detained in a mental health crisis yet not involuntarily committed. Uh, Certainly there are those who are going to say, wait a minute, you're taking more people's Second Amendment rights away. Is this the right thing to do? On the other side of the issue, uh, there are going to be people who are saying, yes, this should be done. Uh, Why wait until someone commits something more serious uh, and is is involuntarily committed to treatment by a judge uh, instead If it's clear someone's in a crisis and uh, needed intervention, 
is it not the case that that person is at risk for committing violence toward themselves or others? And therefore, is it not easily justifiable to, as uh, the authors of the study say, at least temporarily uh, compromise or, or take away outright their Second Amendment rights? After the study period, Flora enacted a law to prevent the sale of guns to some people who had a mental health crisis but were not involuntarily committed. But that law doesn't address the problem of guns already in their reach, of course. Other states, such as California, do address weapons already in the home with gun violence restraining orders, which can block new gun purchases but also allow law enforcement to remove existing weapons from people deemed by a judge to be at high risk of harming themselves or others. Well, again, uh, that's rather intrusive on the part of law enforcement, but at least in this case, uh, it's been adjudicated by a judge, and uh, law enforcement aren't simply just uh, uh, arbitrarily confiscating people's weapons. The study in Florida is one piece of the puzzle, and the authors want to continue to build evidence from different states to draw a better picture of how these laws work under different conditions. Uh, hopefully they'll come up with a way to improve how to approach this issue across the board, looking at what does and doesn't work in different jurisdictions. But the authors quite correctly point out, and I couldn't agree more with this, that we live in a country where private gun ownership is cherished and constitutionally protected and very prevalent. Gun violence is a challenging problem in the United States and one that requires a lot of careful thinking and research to bring evidence to bear for these policies. Now, <clears throat> we've already talked about the issue of guns and violence in the mentally ill and uh, also looked at guns and uh, violence and suicide, this next study we're going to talk about presents a grim picture of our inability to assess the risk of suicide, uh, regardless of what method a person who's going to commit suicide may choose. Uh, and this comes to us from the University of New South Wales in Australia, where a study has cast doubt on the effectiveness of the tools used by medical professionals to assess suicide risk in mental health patients, prompting calls for a review of the allocation of resources based on the assessments. The analysis from University of New South Wales, Australia's School of Psychiatry, has been published in the journal PLOS One. It found that suicide risk assessment tools were not successful in predicting suicide outcomes with no evidence of scientific progress over the past 50 years, pointing to a need for a more patient-focused approach to crisis mental health care. 
If that indeed is the case, that we're no better able to predict who's going to commit suicide now than we were 50 years ago, uh, what a, a terrible, terrible health crisis that is. What uh, the, the untold number of lives that could have been saved. Well, we'll take a, a look at what those findings of that study were when we come back from our next commercial break. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose. And with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on americaswebradio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on americaswebradio.com anytime you like. You're listening to americaswebradio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news. We're talking about a study that finds we don't have reliable methods to assess the risk of suicide in mental health patients. It is widely assumed that the care of psychiatric patients can be guided by a mental health professional's estimate of suicide risk and by using patient characteristics to define high-risk patients. However, the reliability of categorizing suicide risk remains unknown. The objective of the study was to investigate the odds of suicide in high-risk compared to lower-risk categories and the suicide rates in these two groups. Researchers reviewed every long-term prospective study of suicide risk assessment published worldwide over the past 50 years. 
They found there was no reliable method for assessing suicide risk, with the results of the assessments varying enormously across the 37 studies reviewed. They found half of all suicides occurred in lower risk groups, while 95% of high risk patients did not suicide. Overall, the study demonstrated that suicide risk assessments provide results that are slightly better than chance. However, complex methods of suicide risk assessment that take into account multiple risk factors offer no statistical advantage than using a single factor. Much of what happens when a mentally distressed person shows up to a hospital depends on a suicide risk assessment based on a whole range of risk factors. Lower risk patients can be denied treatment, while some high risk patients get hospitalized, sometimes against their wishes, based on an inaccurate risk assessment. In many hospitals, resources are still being allocated on the basis of suicide risk. The authors believe it is time to move away from paternalistic medical decision-making and classifying people into suicide risk categories. If a patient comes in with a suicide crisis, they should be thoroughly assessed without categorization. Mental health professionals must also involve patients in the decision-making process about their ongoing care to improve their outcomes. The study authors further stressed that the focus of the study was on mental health patients rather than the potential strength of risk categorization for suicide among the general community. Well, that's a rather sobering and damning study. If they went back 50 years in the medical literature and couldn't find any evidence of a reliable suicide risk assessment tool. Um, just goes to show you that it is often uh, an act that is shockingly random when someone commits suicide, and afterwards um, any attempt to understand how it could happen and how it could be missed um, is often extremely difficult. Uh, someone in that state of mind isn't going to talk about it unless they're asked. And by the way, no one should ever be afraid to ask someone if they're suicidal for fear that it would suggest it to them or if they were, that would enhance the chances they would commit suicide. Nothing could be further from the truth. If someone is suicidal and you ask them about it, it's only going to help, um, <clears throat> at the very least, being able to talk to someone about it uh, may give them some sense of relief, may somehow show them that there's another way to deal with whatever is causing them so much tremendous distress. Or if not, then you can rest assured that they were just that determined that they were going to carry out that act. Um, and again, there was nothing you, you could have done to prevent it, nor did anything you said uh, bring it about. 
Uh, regardless, you know, we do need much better tools to assess this. Uh, you know, I think that based on previous research showing different levels of metabolites of serotonin, one of the main mood-related brain chemicals in the spinal fluid of people who have attempted or committed suicide, hopefully there will be some biological markers that would point toward who is at risk uh, in a serious way or not. Uh, definitely not suggesting that anyone who is depressed get a spinal tap. No, I'm talking about hopefully in the future they will be easier to, to determine uh, biological markers, um, genetic or blood testing, uh, at most imaging. Uh, but, of course, uh, tests like that elude us at the present time. <clears throat> now, uh, another thing that still eludes us at the present time in the mental health field is how do we best match up a medication for depression with a patient who is depressed and ensure that that medication will successfully treat their depression rather than have to go through multiple trial and error episodes trying to find the right medication. Yes, there is some genetic testing that is available, and although it's quite pricey, it is being covered by health insurance more often. But the results of the testing is not exactly a Rosetta Stone. Uh, it gives you a look at someone's genetics to indicate how they might metabolize all the given antidepressants, and that in turn gives doctors some clues as to what medicines may be metabolized normally, therefore work as expected, which ones may be metabolized differently, either necessitating a higher or lower dose than normal, and which ones to avoid based on a patient's genetic profile. So while on the surface this may seemingly reduce some of the trial and error, it certainly does not eliminate it. So that's why it's very, very exciting that some researchers from King's College in London have come up with a blood test that may personalize the treatment of depression for the first time. These scientists have developed a blood test that accurately and reliably predicts whether depressed patients will respond to common antidepressant medications, which could herald a new era of personalized treatment for people with depression. Guided by this test, patients with blood inflammation above a certain threshold could be directed towards earlier access to more assertive antidepressant strategies, such as a combination of antidepressants, before their condition worsens. Approximately half of all depressed patients do not respond to first-choice antidepressants, and a third of patients are resistant to all available biological treatments, in other words, with medication. Until now, it has been impossible to establish if individual patients will respond to common antidepressant medications or if they need a more assertive antidepressant treatment plan 
which may include a combination of more than one medication. As a result, patients are treated with a trial and error approach whereby one antidepressant is tried after another, often for 12 or more weeks for every type of antidepressant. This can result in long periods of ineffective antidepressant treatment for individuals who may not show an improvement in symptoms anyway. The study was published in the International Journal of Neuropsychopharmacology, and it focused on two biomarkers that measure blood inflammation, as previous studies have already shown that elevated levels of inflammation are associated with poor response to antidepressants. They measured the quantity of two biomarkers of macrophage migration inhibitory factor, or MIF, and interleukin beta in two independent clinical samples of depressed patients. Sorry, interleukin-1 beta, I should have said. Uh, the clinical samples they looked at were before or after they took a range of commonly prescribed antidepressants. They looked at these markers. The researchers found that blood test results above a specified threshold level could precisely and reliably predict the probability of individuals responding to the treatments. Patients with levels of these two markers, the MIF and the interleukin-1-beta, above the thresholds showed a 100% chance of not responding to conventional, commonly prescribed antidepressants. Those with inflammation below the suggested threshold could be expected to respond to first-choice, first-line antidepressants. The two biomarkers examined in the study are both thought to be important in predicting how people with depression respond to antidepressants, as they are involved in several brain mechanisms relevant to depression. These include the birth of new brain cells and connections between them, as well as the death of brain cells through a process called oxidative stress. Oxidative stress occurs when the body both overproduces and then struggles to remove molecules called free radicals. These free radicals break down brain connections and disrupt the brain's chemical signaling, which in turn can lead to the development of depressive symptoms by reducing the brain's protective mechanisms. The <clears throat> identification of biomarkers that predict treatment response is crucial in reducing the social and economic burden of depression and improving the quality of life of patients. Well, we're going to take another commercial break here. When we come back, we'll finish up our thoughts on this blood test for depression study and have more mental health-related news after that. You are listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, 
You probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose. And with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on americaswebradio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on americaswebradio.com anytime you like. You're listening to americaswebradio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news. We're talking about a British research study showing that measuring two biomarkers, MIF, which is related to a certain type of white blood cell that's elevated in states of inflammation, and interleukin-1-beta, an inflammatory protein that's elevated in such states, can actually indicate who may or may not respond to common everyday conventional uh, medication treatment for depression. The study provides a clinically suitable approach for personalizing antidepressant therapy. People who have blood inflammation above a certain threshold could be directed toward earlier access to more aggressive antidepressant strategies, including using combination medication and perhaps drugs that affect levels of inflammation in the body. Uh, as opposed to patients who have below threshold levels of inflammation, uh, where you would have more confidence in just going ahead with standard antidepressant treatment. This is, uh, according to the study authors, the first time a blood test has been used to precisely predict in two independent clinical groups of depressed patients the response to a range of commonly prescribed antidepressants. These results also confirm and extend the mounting evidence 
that high levels of inflammation induce a more severe form of depression, which is less likely to respond to common antidepressants. This study moves us a step closer to providing personalized antidepressant treatment at the earliest signs of depression. And the authors also comment that it is really crucial now to carry out a clinical study comparing the current clinical practice in antidepressant prescription based on trial and error with their novel approach of personalized psychiatry where the antidepressant treatment plan is guided by the blood test. Well, I personally don't share their enthusiasm, at least not to the degree of their enthusiasm. Yes, it's important to see that there are biomarkers of inflammation that potentially could indicate who would or wouldn't respond to standard antidepressant treatment but that doesn't tell you which medication to use for any given patient. Um, so it's not going to eliminate the trial and error. Uh, at best, it indicates, all right, well, you know, this is someone who you know out of the gate is going to need aggressive combination medication therapy. And if you start with that right away, then you're increasing the chances that you're going to get that person feeling better faster instead of starting out right from the beginning with standard care, uh, trying that several times before finding out that no standard approach works and that you have to resort to something more aggressive, a combination approach, and in the meantime, maybe months have gone by and the person isn't feeling better. Uh, so yes, that in that sense, the discovery of these tests is helpful, but again, in my opinion, if we're going to have really, really personalized treatment for depression, then uh, that's going to look like, okay, this person should take this medicine because of this aspect of their genetics and their brain receptors, and uh, while we may be somewhat closer to that than we were 10 years ago, we're still a long ways away. Now, <clears throat> earlier in the podcast, I talked about hoping to have time uh, to go over with you some good news for a change, a positive study showing that people can recover from mental illness. And this issue came up in the context of the study we talked about earlier in the podcast about media coverage of uh, violence and mental illness. You rarely hear positive news uh, hey, you know, newsflash, people with mental illness can recover and feel better and lead full and productive lives. You know, not exactly a catchy soundbite. Uh, so happy to present to you this University of Toronto study in which it says two in five formerly depressed adults are happy and flourishing. <clears throat> the new study reports that 39% who have experienced an episode of major depression are able to achieve complete mental health. Um, so that is good news, but clearly it could be better than that. Researchers consider complete mental health as occurring when people achieve almost daily happiness or life satisfaction, 
positive social and psychological well-being and are also free of depression, anxiety, suicidal thoughts, and substance abuse for at least one full year. Now that is a pretty high threshold to meet and maybe that's why the rate is only 39%. Let me review that again. Complete mental health, almost daily happiness or life satisfaction, positive social and psychological well-being, and also free of depression, anxiety, suicidal thoughts, and substance abuse for at least one full year, that is continuously. Well, you know, although it may be difficult to uh, achieve that and not happening often enough, of course that's uh, what we're aiming for. Now, the research does provide a hopeful message to patients struggling with depression, their families, and health professionals. A large number of formerly depressed individuals recover and go on to reach optimal well-being. Social support was a major factor associated with complete mental health. Formerly depressed adults who had emotionally supportive and close relationships were four times more likely to report complete mental health than those without such relationships. Having at least one trusted friend was critical to cultivating complete mental health. The study's authors were surprised to learn that the length of the depressive episode had no bearing on an individual's ability to attain complete mental health. Those whose longest depressive episode lasted more than two years were just as likely to be in complete mental health as those who had the disorder for only one month. In other words, there is no need for individuals and families to lose hope that a full recovery is beyond reach. Researchers also found that poorer physical health, functional limitations, and insomnia were impediments to flourishing. Clearly, this underlines the importance for health professionals to consider strategies that address both physical health problems and social isolation when treating those with depression. The researchers examined a nationally representative sample of more than 2,500 Canadians who had experienced a major depressive disorder at some point in their lives. The data were drawn from Statistics Canada's 2012 Canadian Community Mental Health Survey. The research was published the week of <clears throat> June the 6th in the journal Psychiatry Research. Now, even though it's a Canadian study, and I know what you're going to say, their health system is very different, uh, this didn't have to do necessarily uh, with methods of treatment. It was simply just looking at, okay, this people had an episode of major depression and these were their outcomes. Uh, and I think in any sort of uh, North American uh, society, their results would be comparable. So I, I do think the results are relevant for us here in the States, even, even though, again, admittedly, there are very big differences between the healthcare system 
in the U.S. versus our northern neighbors. Now, um, I've been expressing less than politically correct or at least less than popular views about the uh, liberalizing attitudes toward marijuana use in this country with more and more states and jurisdictions uh, decriminalizing its possession and public use and more and more states and jurisdictions approving uh, medical use of marijuana. Here's another study showing that uh, it can be very damaging. Chronic marijuana use disrupts the brain's natural reward processes. This comes to us from research in the Center for Brain Health at the University of Texas. Now, I know what you're going to say. Not everyone who uses it casually is a chronic user. But nonetheless, if uh, the rules and regulations are more relaxed, certainly it could lead to more chronic use. Uh, this was published in the journal Human Brain Mapping. Researchers showed with functional magnetic resonance imaging that long-term marijuana users had more brain activity in the reward system when presented with cues related to cannabis than with natural reward cues, showing that the natural reward circuitry of the brain is disrupted and distorted, making marijuana highly salient to those who use it heavily. In essence, these brain alterations could be a marker of transition from recreational marijuana use to problematic use. Researchers studied 59 users, 70 non-users. They looked at potential biases such as traumatic brain injury and other drug use. Participants rated their urge to use it after looking at various visual cues such as drug paraphernalia and then self-selected images of, of preferred fruit such as banana or apples or grapes or an orange. And they also looked at self-reports to measure problems with marijuana use. On average, these users had done so for 12 years. But when they showed the drug paraphernalia cues, there was an enhanced response in the brain associated with reward compared to the uh, non-drug reward-related stimulus. And they found that this disruption in the reward system correlates with the number of problems associated with marijuana use, like family issues. Well, continued marijuana use, despite these problems, is an indication of dependence or addiction. The research was funded by the National Institute on Drug Abuse. Uh, so there is a lot of evidence of negative changes in the brain, despite the public's relaxed attitudes about it. That's going to have to wrap up tonight's show. Hope you have a wonderful, stress-free week until next time we get together. But if not, then you need to call Dr. Scott, good night and thanks for listening. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.